1: chapter eighteen of a princess of mars by edgar rice burroughs this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by thomas copeland chapter eighteen chained in warhoon it must have been several hours before i regained consciousness and i well remember the feeling of surprise which swept over me as i realized that i was not dead i was lying among a pile of sleeping silks and furs in a corner of a small room in which were several green warriors, and bending over me was an ancient and ugly female. As I opened my eyes, she turned to one of the warriors, saying, He will live, Ojed. Tis well, replied the one so addressed, rising and approaching my couch, He should render rare sport for the great games. And now, as my eyes fell upon him, I saw that he was no Thark, for his ornaments and metal were not of that horde. He was a huge fellow, terribly scarred about the face and chest, and with one broken tusk and a missing ear. Strapped on either breast were human skulls, and depending from these a number of dried human hands. His reference to the great games, of which I had heard so much while among the Tharks, convinced me that I had but jumped from purgatory into Gehenna. After a few more words with the female, during which she assured him that I was now fully fit to travel, the jed ordered that we mount and ride after the main column. I was strapped securely to as wild and unmanageable a thoat as I had ever seen, and, with a mounted warrior on either side to prevent the beast from bolting, we rode forth at a furious pace in pursuit of the column. My wounds gave me but little pain, so wonderfully and rapidly had the applications and injections of the female exercised their therapeutic powers, and so deftly had she bound and plastered the injuries. Just before dark we reached the main body of troops, shortly after they had made camp for the night. I was immediately taken before the leader, who proved to be the jeddak of the hordes of Wahoon. Like the jed who had brought me, he was frightfully scarred and also decorated with the breastplate of human skulls and dried dead hands, which seemed to mark all the greater warriors among the Warhoons, as well as to indicate their awful ferocity, which greatly transcends even that of the Tharks. The Jeddak, Bar Comas, who was comparatively young, was the object of the fierce and jealous hatred of his old lieutenant, Dak the Jed who had captured me and I could not but note the almost studied efforts which the latter made to affront his superior. He entirely omitted the usual formal salutation as we entered the presence of the jeddak, and as he pushed me roughly before the ruler he exclaimed in a loud and menacing voice, "'I have brought a strange creature wearing the metal of a thark, whom it is my pleasure to have battle with a wild thoat at the great games.' he will die as bard Comas, your jeddak sees fit if at all replied the young ruler with emphasis and dignity if at all roared Kova, by the dead hands of my thoat but he shall die bard komas no maudlin weakness on your part shall save him oh would that Warhoun were ruled by a real jeddak rather than by a water-hearted weakling from whom even old dakova could tear the metal with his bare hands Barcoma sighed the defiant and insubordinate chieftain for an instant his expression one of haughty fearless contempt and hate and then without drawing a weapon and without uttering a word he hurled himself at the throat of his defamer I never before had seen two green Martian warriors battle with nature's weapons, and the exhibition of animal ferocity which ensued was as fearful a thing as the most disordered imagination could picture. They tore at each other's eyes and ears with their hands, and with their gleaming tusks repeatedly slashed and gored, until both were fairly cut to ribbons from head to foot. Barcomas had much the better of the battle, as he was stronger, quicker, and more intelligent. It soon seemed that the encounter was done, saving only the final death thrust when Bar slipped in, breaking away from a clinch. It was the one little opening that kova needed, and hurling himself at the body of his adversary he buried his single mighty tusk in Bar groin, and with the last powerful effort ripped the young jeddak wide open the full length of his body, the great tusk finally wedging in the bones of Barcomus' jaw. Victor and vanquished rolled limp and lifeless upon the moss, a huge mass of torn and bloody flesh. Barcomus was stone dead, and only the most Herculean efforts on the part of Dakova's females saved him from the fate he deserved. Three days later he walked without assistance to the body of Barcomus which, by custom, had not been moved from where it fell and placing his foot upon the neck of his erstwhile ruler, he assumed the title of Jeddak of Warhoon. The dead Jeddak's hands and head were removed, to be added to the ornaments of his conqueror, and then his women cremated what remained amid wild and terrible laughter. The injuries to Darkova had delayed the march so greatly that it was decided to give up the expedition which was arrayed upon a small Thark community in retaliation for the destruction of the Incubator, until after the Great Games, and the entire body of warriors, ten thousand in number, turned back toward Warhoun. My introduction to these cruel and bloodthirsty people was but an index to the scenes I had witnessed almost daily while with them. They are a smaller horde than the Tharks, but much more ferocious. Not a day passed! but that some members of the various Warhoon communities met in deadly combat. I have seen as high as eight mortal duels within a single day. We reached the city of Warhoon after some three days' march, and I was immediately cast into a dungeon and heavily chained to the floor and walls. Food was brought me at intervals, but owing to the utter darkness of the place I do not know whether I lay there days, or weeks, or months. It was the most horrible experience of all my life, and that my mind did not give way to the terrors of that inky blackness has been a wonder to me ever since. The place was filled with creeping, crawling things. Cold, sinuous bodies passed over me when I lay down, and in the darkness I occasionally caught glimpses of gleaming, fiery eyes, fixed in horrible intentness upon me. No sound reached me from the world above, and no word would my jailer vouchsafe when my food was brought to me, although I at first bombarded him with questions. Finally all the hatred and maniacal loathing for these awful creatures who had placed me in this horrible place was centered by my tottering reason upon this single emissary who represented to me the entire horde of Wahoons. I had noticed that he always advanced with his dim torch to where he could place the food within my reach, and as he stooped to place it upon the floor, his head was about on a level with my breast. So, with the cunning of a madman, I backed into the far corner of my cell, when next I heard him approaching, and gathering a little slack of the great chain which held me in my hand, I waited his coming, crouching like some beast of prey. AS HE STOOPED TO PLACE MY FOOD UPON THE GROUND, I SWUNG THE CHAIN ABOVE MY HEAD, AND CRASHED THE LINKS WITH ALL MY STRENGTH UPON HIS SKULL. WITHOUT A SOUND HE SLIPPED TO THE FLOOR, STONE-DEAD. LAUGHING AND CHATTERING LIKE THE IDIOT I WAS FAST BECOMING, I FELL UPON HIS PROSTRATE FORM, MY FINGERS FEELING FOR HIS DEAD THROAT. PRESENTLY THEY CAME IN CONTACT WITH A SMALL CHAIN, AT THE END OF WHICH DANGLED A NUMBER OF KEYS. The touch of my fingers on these keys brought back my reason with the suddenness of thought. No longer was I a gibbering idiot, but a sane, reasoning man with the means of escape within my very hands. As I was groping to remove the chain from about my victim's neck, I glanced up into the darkness to see six pairs of gleaming eyes fixed, unwinking, upon me. Slowly they approached and slowly I shrank back from the awful horror of them. Back into my corner I crouched, holding my hands' palms out before me, and stealthily on came the awful eyes until they reached the dead body at my feet. Then slowly they retreated, but this time with a strange grating sound, and finally they disappeared in some black and distant recess of my dungeon. End of Chapter 18 Chapter 19. Of A Princess of Mars by Edgar Rice Burroughs. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Thomas Copeland. Chapter 19. Battling in the Arena. Slowly I regained my composure, and finally essayed again to attempt to remove the keys from the dead body of my former jailer. But as I reached out into the darkness to locate it, I found to my horror that it was gone. Then the truth flashed on me. The owners of those gleaming eyes had dragged my prize away from me to be devoured in their neighboring lair, as they had been waiting for days, for weeks, for months, through all this awful eternity of my imprisonment, to drag my dead carcass to their feast. For two days no food was brought me. But then a new messenger appeared, and my incarceration went on as before. But not again did I allow my reason to be submerged by the horror of my position. Shortly after this episode, another prisoner was brought in and chained near me. By the dim torchlight I saw that he was a red Martian, and I could scarcely await the departure of his guards to address him. As their retreating footsteps died away in the distance, I called out softly the Martian word of greeting, Kaor. Who are you who speaks out of the darkness? he answered. John Carter, a friend of the red men of Helium. I am of Helium, he said, but I do not recall your name. And then I told him my story as I have written it here, omitting only any reference to my love for Dejah Thoris. He was much excited by the news of Helium's princess, and seemed quite positive that she and Sola could easily have reached a point of safety from where they left me. He said that he knew the place well, because the defile through which the warhoon warriors had passed when they discovered us was the only one ever used by them when marching to the south dejah thoris and sola entered the hills not five miles from a great waterway and are now probably quite safe he assured me my fellow prisoner was kantos khan a padwar lieutenant in the navy of helium he had been a member of the ill-fated expedition which had fallen into the hands of the tharks at the time of Dejah Thoris' capture, and he briefly related the events which followed the defeat of the battleships. Badly injured and only partially manned, they had limped slowly toward Helium, but while passing near the city of Zodanga, the capital of Helium's hereditary enemies among the red men of Barsoom, they had been attacked by a great body of war-vessels, and all but the craft to which Kantos Khan belonged were either destroyed or captured. His vessel was chased for days by three of the Sudoncan warships, but finally escaped during the darkness of a moonless night. Thirty days after the capture of Dejah Thoris, or about the time of our coming to Thark, his vessel had reached Helium with about ten survivors of the original crew, of seven hundred officers and men. Immediately seven great fleets, each of one hundred mighty warships, had been dispatched to search for Dejah Thoris, and from these vessels two thousand smaller craft had been kept out continuously in futile search for the missing princess. Two green Martian communities had been wiped off the face of Barsoom by the avenging fleets, but no trace of Dejah Thoris had been found. They had been searching among the northern hordes, and only within the past few days had they extended their quest to the south. Kantos Khan had been detailed to one of the small one-man flyers, and had had the misfortune to be discovered by the Warhoons while exploring their city. The bravery and daring of the man won my greatest respect and admiration. Alone, he had landed at the city's boundary, and on foot had penetrated to the buildings surrounding the plaza. For two days and nights he had explored their quarters and their dungeons in search of his beloved princess only to fall into the hands of a party of war hoons as he was about to leave, after assuring himself that Dejah Thoris was not a captive there. During the period of our incarceration, Kandos Khan and I became well acquainted, and formed a warm personal friendship. A few days only elapsed, however, before we were dragged forth from our dungeon for the great games. We were conducted early one morning to an enormous amphitheater, which, instead of having been built upon the surface of the ground, was excavated below the surface. It had partially filled with debris, so that how large it had originally been was difficult to say. In its present condition, it held the entire twenty thousand warhoons of the assembled hordes. The arena was immense, but extremely uneven and unkempt. Around it the warhoons had piled building-stone from some of the ruined edifices of the ancient city to prevent the animals and the captives from escaping into the audience, and at each end had been constructed cages to hold them until their turns came to meet some horrible death upon the arena. Kantos Khan and I were confined together in one of the cages. In the others were wild kalats, thoats, mad zitadars, green warriors and women of other hordes, and many strange and ferocious wild beasts of Barsoom which I had never before seen. The din of their roaring, growling, and squealing was deafening, and the formidable appearance of any one of them was enough to make the stoutest heart feel grave forebodings. Kantos Khan explained to me that at the end of the day one of these prisoners would gain freedom and the others would lie dead about the arena. The winners in the various contests of the day would be pitted against each other until only two remained alive, the victor in the last encounter being set free, whether animal or man. The following morning the cages would be filled with a new consignment of victims, and so on throughout the ten days of the games. Shortly after we had been caged, the amphitheater began to fill and within an hour every available part of the seating space was occupied. Doc Kova, with his jeds and chieftains, sat at the center of one side of the arena upon a large raised platform. At a signal from Doc Kova, the doors of two cages were thrown open, and a dozen green Martian females were driven to the center of the arena. Each was given a dagger, and then at the far end a pack of twelve calots, or wild dogs, were loosed upon them. As the brutes, growling and foaming, rushed upon the almost defenceless women, I turned my head that I might not see the horrid sight. The yells and laughter of the green horde bore witness to the excellent quality of the sport, and when I turned back to the arena, as Kantos Khan told me it was over, I saw three victorious calots snarling and growling over the bodies of their prey. The women had given a good account of themselves next a mad zittidar was loosed among the remaining dogs and so it went throughout the long hot horrible day during the day i was pitted first against men and then beasts but as i was armed with a long sword and always outclassed my adversary in agility and generally in strength as well it proved but child's play to me time and again i won the applause of the bloodthirsty multitude and toward the end there were cries that I be taken from the arena and be made a member of the hordes of Warhoon. Finally, there were but three of us left, a great green warrior of some far northern horde, Kantos Khan, and myself. The other two were to battle, and then I to fight the conqueror for the liberty which was accorded the final winner. Kantos Khan had fought several times during the day, and, like myself, had always proven victorious but occasionally by the smallest of margins, especially when pitted against the green warriors. I had little hope that he could best his giant adversary who had mowed down all before him during the day. The fellow towered nearly sixteen feet in height, while Kantos Khan was some inches under six feet. As they advanced to meet one another I saw for the first time a trick of the Martian swordsmanship which centered Kantos Khan's every hope of victory and life on one cast of the dice, for, as he came to within about twenty feet of the huge fellow, he threw his sword-arm far behind him over his shoulder, and with a mighty sweep hurled his weapon point foremost at the green warrior. It flew true as an arrow, and, piercing the poor devil's heart, laid him dead upon the arena. Kantos Khan and I were now pitted against each other, BUT AS WE APPROACHED TO THE ENCOUNTER, I WHISPERED TO HIM TO PROLONG THE BATTLE UNTIL NEARLY DARK, IN THE HOPE THAT WE MIGHT FIND SOME MEANS OF ESCAPE. THE HORDE EVIDENTLY GUESSED THAT WE HAD NO HEARTS TO FIGHT EACH OTHER, AND SO THEY HOWLED IN RAGE AS NEITHER OF US PLACED A FATAL THRUST. JUST AS I SAW THE SUDDEN COMING OF DARK, I WHISPERED TO KANTOS KHAN TO THRUST HIS SWORD BETWEEN MY LEFT ARM AND MY BODY. As he did so, I staggered back, clasping the sword tightly with my arm, and thus fell to the ground with his weapon apparently protruding from my chest. Kantos Khan perceived my coup, and, stepping quickly to my side, he placed his foot upon my neck, and, withdrawing his sword from my body, gave me the final death-blow through the neck, which is supposed to sever the jugular vein. But in this instance the cold blade slipped harmlessly into the sand of the arena in the darkness which had now fallen none could tell but that he had really finished me i whispered to him to go and claim his freedom and then look for me in the hills east of the city and so he left me when the amphitheatre had cleared i crept stealthily to the top and as the great excavation lay far from the plaza And in an untenanted portion of the great dead city, I had little trouble in reaching the hills beyond. End of chapter 19. Chapter 20 of A Princess of Mars. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Thomas Copeland. Chapter 20. In the Atmosphere Factory. For two days I waited there for Kantos Khan. But as he did not come I started off on foot in a northwesterly direction toward a point where he had told me lay the nearest waterway. My only food consisted of vegetable milk from the plants which gave so bounteously of this priceless fluid. Through two long weeks I wandered, stumbling through the nights guided only by the stars, and hiding during the days behind some protruding rock or among the occasional hills I traversed. Several times I was attacked by wild beasts, strange, uncouth monstrosities that leaped upon me in the dark, so that I had ever to grasp my long-sword in my hand that I might be ready for them. Usually my strange, newly acquired telepathic power warned me in ample time, but once I was down with vicious fangs at my jugular, and a hairy face pressed close to mine before I knew that I was even threatened. What manner of thing was upon me I did not know, but that it was large and heavy and many-legged I could feel. My hands were at its throat before the fangs had a chance to bury themselves in my neck, and slowly I forced the hairy face from me and closed my fingers vice-like upon its windpipe. Without sound we lay there, the beast exerting every effort to reach me with those awful fangs, and I, straining to maintain my grip and choke the life from it as I kept it from my throat. Slowly my arms gave to the unequal struggle, and inch by inch the burning eyes and gleaming tusks of my antagonist crept toward me until, as the hairy face touched mine again, I realized that all was over. And then. A living mass of destruction sprang from the surrounding darkness full upon the creature that held me pinioned to the ground. The two rolled growling upon the moss, tearing and rending one another in a frightful manner, but it was soon over, and my preserver stood with lowered head above the throat of the dead thing which would have killed me. The nearer moon, hurtling suddenly above the horizon and lighting up the Barsoomian scene, showed me that my preserver was Woola. But from whence he had come, or how found me, I was at a loss to know. That I was glad of his companionship it is needless to say, but my pleasure at seeing him was tempered by anxiety as to the reason of his leaving Dejah Thoris. Only her death, I felt sure, could account for his absence from her, so faithful I knew him to be to my commands. By the light of the now brilliant moons I saw that he was but a shadow of his former self, and as he turned from my caress and commenced greedily to devour the dead carcass at my feet I realized that the poor fellow was more than half starved. I myself was in but little better plight, but I could not bring myself to eat the uncooked flesh, and I had no means of making a fire. When Woola had finished his meal I again took up my weary and seemingly endless wandering in quest of the elusive waterway. At daybreak of the fifteenth day of my search I was overjoyed to see the high trees that denoted the object of my search. About noon I dragged myself wearily to the portals of a huge building which covered perhaps four square miles, and towered two hundred feet in the air. It showed no aperture in the mighty walls, other than the tiny door at which I sank exhausted, nor was there any sign of life about it. I could find no bell or other method of making my presence known to the inmates of the place, unless a small round hole in the wall near the door was for that purpose. It was of about the bigness of a lead pencil, and thinking that it might be in the nature of a speaking tube, I put my mouth to it, and was about to call into it, when a voice issued from it asking me whom I might be. Seek. Where from, and the nature of my errand? I explained that I had escaped from the warhoons and was dying of starvation and exhaustion. You wear the metal of a green warrior and are followed by a calot. Yet you are of the figure of a red man. In color you are neither green nor red. In the name of the ninth day, what manner of creature are you? I am a friend of the red men of Barsoom, and I am starving. In the name of humanity, open to us," I replied. Presently the door commenced to recede before me until it had sunk into the wall fifty feet. Then it stopped and slid easily to the left, exposing a short narrow corridor of concrete, at the further end of which was another door, similar in every respect to the one I had just passed. No one was in sight, yet immediately we passed the first door, it slid gently into place behind us, and receded rapidly to its original position in the front wall of the building. As the door had slipped aside I had noted its great thickness, fully twenty feet, and as it reached its place once more after closing behind us, great cylinders of steel had dropped from the ceiling behind it and fitted their lower ends into apertures countersunk in the floor. A second and a third door receded before me, and slipped to one side as the first, before I reached a large inner chamber where I found food and drink set out upon a great stone table. A voice directed me to satisfy my hunger and to feed my calot, and, while I was thus engaged, my invisible host put me through a severe and searching cross-examination." "'Your statements are most remarkable,' said the voice, unconcluding its questioning. "'But you are evidently speaking the truth, and it is equally evident that you are not of Barsoom. I can tell that by the conformation of your brain, and the strange location of your internal organs, and the shape and size of your heart.' "'Can you see through me?' I exclaimed yes i can see all but your thoughts and were you a barsoomian i could read those then a door opened at the far side of the chamber and a strange dried-up little mummy of a man came toward me he wore but a single article of clothing or adornment a small collar of gold from which depended upon his chest a great ornament as large as a dinner plate set solid with huge diamonds except for the exact center, which was occupied by a strange stone, an inch in diameter, that scintillated nine different and distinct rays, the seven colors of our earthly prism, and two beautiful rays which, to me, were new and nameless. I cannot describe them any more than you could describe red to a blind man. I only know that they were beautiful in the extreme. The old man sat and talked with me for hours, and the strangest part of our intercourse was that I could read his every thought while he could not fathom an iota from my mind unless I spoke. I did not apprise him of my ability to sense his mental operations, and thus I learned a great deal which proved of immense value to me later, and which I would never have known had he suspected my strange power, for the Martians have such perfect control of their mental machinery that they are able to direct their thoughts with absolute precision. The building in which I found myself contained the machinery which produces the artificial atmosphere which sustains life on Mars. The secret of the entire process hinges on the use of the ninth ray one of the beautiful scintillations which I had noted emanating from the great stone in my host's diadem. This ray is separated from the other rays of the sun by means of finely adjusted instruments placed upon the roof of the huge building, three-quarters of which is used for reservoirs in which the ninth ray is stored. This product is then treated electrically or rather certain proportions of refined electric vibrations are incorporated with it, and the result is then pumped to the five principal air centers of the planet, where, as it is released, contact with the ether of space transforms it into atmosphere. There is always sufficient reserve of the ninth ray stored in the great building to maintain the present Martian atmosphere for a thousand years. And the only fear, as my new friend told me, was that some accident might befall the pumping apparatus. He led me to an inner chamber where I beheld a battery of twenty radium pumps, any one of which was equal to the task of furnishing all Mars with the atmosphere compound. For eight hundred years, he told me he had watched these pumps, which are used alternately a day each at a stretch, or a little over twenty-four and one-half earth hours. He has one assistant who divides the watch with him. Half a Martian year, about 344 of our days, each of these men spend alone in this huge isolated plant. Every red Martian is taught during earliest childhood the principles of the manufacture of atmosphere, but only two at one time ever hold the secret of ingress to the great building, which built as it is with walls a hundred and fifty feet thick, is absolutely unassailable, even the roof being guarded from assault by aircraft by a glass covering five feet thick. The only fear they entertain of attack is from the green Martians or some demented red man, as all Barsoomians realize that the very existence of every form of life on Mars is dependent upon the uninterrupted working of this plant. One curious fact I discovered as I watched his thoughts was that the outer doors are manipulated by telepathic means. The locks are so finely adjusted that the doors are released by the action of a certain combination of thought waves. To experiment with my newfound toy I thought to surprise him into revealing this combination, and so I asked him, in a casual manner, how he had managed to unlock the massive doors for me from the inner chambers of the building. As quick as a flash there leaped to his mind nine Martian sounds, but as quickly faded as he answered that this was a secret he must not divulge. From then on his manner toward me changed, as though he feared that he had been surprised into divulging his great secret and I read suspicion and fear in his looks and thoughts, though his words were still fair. Before I retired for the night he promised to give me a letter to a nearby agricultural officer who would help me on my way to Zodonga, which he said was the nearest Martian city. But be sure that you do not let them know you are bound for Helium, as they are at war with that country. My assistant and I are of no country. We belong to all Barsoom, and this talisman which we wear protects us in all lands, even among the green men, though we do not trust ourselves to their hands if we can avoid it," he added. And so, good night, my friend, he continued. May you have a long and restful sleep, yes, a long sleep. And though he smiled pleasantly, I saw in his thoughts the wish that he had never admitted me, and then a picture of him standing over me in the night, and the swift thrust of a long dagger, and the half-formed words, I am sorry, but it is for the best good of Barsoom. As he closed the door of my chamber behind him, his thoughts were cut off from me, as was the sight of him which seemed strange to me in my little knowledge of thought-transference. What was I to do? How could I escape through these mighty walls? Easily could I kill him, now that I was warned, but once he was dead I could no more escape, and with the stopping of the machinery of the great plant I should die with all the other inhabitants of the planet, all, oh, even Dejah Thoris, were she not already dead. For the others I did not give the snap of my finger, but the thought of Dejah Thoris drove from my mind all desire to kill my mistaken host. Cautiously I opened the door of my apartment and, followed by Woola, sought the inner of the great doors. A wild scheme had come to me. I would attempt to force the great locks by the nine thought-waves I had read in my host's mind. Creeping stealthily through corridor after corridor, and down winding runways which turned hither and thither, I finally reached the great hall in which I had broken my long fast that morning. Nowhere had I seen my host, nor did I know where he kept himself by night. I was on the point of stepping boldly out into the room when a slight noise behind me warned me back into the shadows of a recess in the corridor. Dragging Woola after me I crouched low in the darkness. Presently the old man passed close by me, and as he entered the dimly lighted chamber which I had been about to pass through I saw that he held a long, thin dagger in his hand, and that he was sharpening it upon a stone. In his mind was the decision to inspect the radium pumps, which would take about thirty minutes, and then... Return to my bedchamber and finish me. As he passed through the great hall and disappeared down the runway which led to the pump room, I stole stealthily from my hiding place and crossed to the great door, the inner of the three which stood between me and Liberty. Concentrating my mind upon the massive lock, I hurled the nine thought waves against it. In breathless expectancy, I waited when. Finally, the great door moved softly toward me and slid quietly to one side. One after the other, the remaining mighty portals opened at my command, and Woola and I stepped forth into the darkness, free, but little better off than we had been before, other than that we had full stomachs. Hastening away from the shadows of the formidable pile, I made for the first crossroads, intending to strike the central turnpike as quickly as possible. This I reached about morning, and entering the first enclosure I came to, I searched for some evidences of a habitation. There were low rambling buildings of concrete, barred with heavy impassable doors, and no amount of hammering and hallooing brought any response. Weary and exhausted from sleeplessness, I threw myself upon the ground commanding Woola to stand guard. Some time later I was awakened by his frightful growlings, and opened my eyes to see three red Martians standing a short distance from us, and covering me with their rifles. I am unarmed, and no enemy, I hastened to explain. I have been a prisoner among the green men, and am on my way to Zodanga. All I ask is food and rest for myself and my kalat, and the proper directions for reaching my destination." They lowered their rifles, and advanced pleasantly toward me, placing their right hands upon my left shoulder, after the manner of their custom of salute, and asking me many questions about myself and my wanderings. They then took me to the house of one of them, which was only a short distance away. The buildings I had been hammering at, in the early morning, were occupied only by stock and farm produce, the house proper, standing among a grove of enormous trees, and like all Red Martian homes, had been raised at night some forty or fifty feet from the ground on a large round metal shaft which slid up or down within a sleeve sunk in the ground, and was operated by a tiny radium engine in the entrance hall of the building. Instead of bothering with bolts and bars for their dwellings, the Red Martians simply run them up out of harm's way during the night. They also have private means for lowering or raising them from the ground without, if they wish to go away and leave them. These brothers, and their wives and children, occupied three similar houses on this farm. They did no work themselves, being government officers in charge. The labor was performed by convicts, prisoners of war, delinquent debtors, and confirmed bachelors who were too poor to pay the high celibate tax which all Red Martian governments impose. They were the personification of cordiality and hospitality, and I spent several days with them, resting and recuperating from my long and arduous experiences. When they had heard my story I omitted all reference to Dejah Thoris and the old man of the atmosphere plant, they advised me to color my body to more nearly resemble their own race, and then attempt to find employment in Zodonga either in the army or the navy. The chances are small that your tale will be believed until after you have proven your trustworthiness and won friends among the higher nobles of the court. This you can most easily do through military service, as we are a warlike people on Barsoom, explained one of them, and save our richest favors for the fighting man. When I was ready to depart they furnished me with a small domestic bull thoat, such as is used for saddle purposes by all red Martians. The animal is about the size of a horse, and quite gentle, but in color and shape an exact replica of his huge and fierce cousin of the wilds. The brothers had supplied me with a reddish oil with which I anointed my entire body, and one of them cut my hair, which had grown quite long, in the prevailing fashion of the time, square at the back and banged in front so that I could have passed anywhere on Pon Barzoom as a full-fledged Red Martian. My metal and ornaments were also renewed in the style of a Zodongan gentleman, attached to the house of Tor, which was the family name of my benefactors. They filled a little sack at my side with Zodongan money. The medium of exchange upon Mars is not dissimilar from our own, except that the coins are oval. Paper money is issued by individuals as they require it, and redeemed twice yearly. If a man issues more than he can redeem, the government pays his creditors in full and the debtor works out the amount upon the farms or in mines which are all owned by the government. This suits everybody except the debtor, as it has been a difficult thing to obtain sufficient voluntary labor to work the great isolated farmlands of Mars, stretching as they do like narrow ribbons from pole to pole, through wild stretches peopled by wild animals and wilder men. When I mentioned my inability to repay them for their kindness to me, they assured me that I would have ample opportunity if I lived long upon Barsoom, and bidding me farewell, they watched me until I was out of sight upon the broad white turnpike. End of chapter 20 Chapter 21 of a Princess of Mars by Edgar Rice Burroughs. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Thomas Copeland. Chapter 21 An Air Scout for Zodanga. As I proceeded on my journey toward Zodanga, many strange and interesting sights arrested my attention, and at the several farmhouses where I stopped, I learned a number of new and instructive things concerning the methods and manners of Barsoom. The water which supplies the farms of Mars is collected in immense underground reservoirs at either pole from the melting ice caps, and pumped through long conduits to the various populated centers. Along either side of these conduits, and extending their entire length, lie the cultivated districts. These are divided into tracts of about the same size, each tract being under the supervision of one or more government officers. Instead of flooding the surface of the fields and thus wasting immense quantities of water by evaporation, the precious liquid is carried underground through a vast network of small pipes directly to the roots of the vegetation. The crops upon Mars are always uniform, for there are no droughts, no rains, no high winds, and no insects or destroying birds. On this trip I tasted the first meat I had eaten since leaving earth large, juicy steaks and chops from the well-fed domestic animals of the farms. Also I enjoyed luscious fruits and vegetables, but not a single article of food which was exactly similar to anything on earth. Every plant and flower and vegetable and animal has been so refined by ages of careful scientific cultivation and breeding that the like of them on earth dwindled into pale, gray, characterless nothingness by comparison. At a second stop I met some highly cultivated people of the noble class, and while in conversation we chanced to speak of Helium. One of the older men had been there on a diplomatic mission several years before, and spoke with regret of the conditions which seemed destined ever to keep these two countries at war. "'Helium,' he said, "'rightly boasts the most beautiful women of Barsoom.' and of all her treasures the wondrous daughter of Moors, kajak dejah thoris is the most exquisite flower why he added the people really worship the ground she walks upon and since her loss on that ill-starred expedition all helium has been draped in mourning that our ruler should have attacked the disabled fleet as it was returning to helium was but another of his awful blunders which I fear will sooner or later compel Zodanga to elevate a wiser man to his place. Even now, though our victorious armies are surrounding Helium, the people of Zodanga are voicing their displeasure, for the war is not a popular one, since it is not based on right or justice. Our forces took advantage of the absence of the principal fleet of Helium on their search for the princess, and so we have been able easily to reduce the city to a sorry plight. It is said she will fall within the next few passages of the further moon. And what, think you, may have been the fate of the Princess Dejah Thoris, I asked, as casually as possible. She is dead, he answered. This much was learned from a green warrior recently captured by our forces in the south. She escaped from the hordes of Thark with a strange creature of another world, only to fall into the hands of the Wahoons. Their thoughts were found wandering upon the sea-bottom, and evidences of a bloody conflict were discovered nearby. While this information was in no way reassuring, neither was it at all conclusive proof of the death of Dejah Thoris, and so I determined to make every effort possible to reach Helium as quickly as I could, and carry to Tartus more such news of his granddaughter's possible whereabouts as lay in my power. TEN DAYS AFTER LEAVING THE THREE TOR BROTHERS I ARRIVED AT SUDANGA. FROM THE MOMENT THAT I HAD COME IN CONTACT WITH THE RED INHABITANTS OF MARS I HAD NOTICED THAT WULA DREW A GREAT AMOUNT OF UNWELCOME ATTENTION TO ME, SINCE THE HUGE BRUTE BELONGED TO A SPECIES WHICH IS NEVER DOMESTICATED BY THE RED MEN. WERE ONE TO STROLL DOWN BROADWAY WITH THE NUMIDIAN LION AT HIS HEELS THE EFFECT WOULD BE SOMEWHAT SIMILAR TO THAT WHICH I SHOULD HAVE PRODUCED had I entered Zodanga with Woola. The very thought of parting with the faithful fellow caused me so great regret and genuine sorrow that I put it off until just before we arrived at the city's gates. But then, finally, it became imperative that we separate. Had nothing further than my own safety or pleasure been at stake, No argument could have prevailed upon me to turn away the one creature upon Barsoom that had never failed in a demonstration of affection and loyalty. But as I would willingly have offered my life in the service of her in search of whom I was about to challenge the unknown dangers of this to me mysterious city, I could not permit even Woola's life to threaten the success of my venture, much less his momentary happiness, for I doubted not he would soon forget me. And so I bade the poor beast an affectionate farewell, promising him, however, that if I came through my adventure in safety, that in some way I should find the means to search him out. He seemed to understand me fully, and when I pointed back in the direction of Thark he turned sorrowfully away, nor could I bear to watch him go but resolutely set my face towards Zodanga, and with a touch of heart-sickness approached her frowning walls. The letter I bore from them gained me immediate entrance to the vast walled city. It was still very early in the morning, and the streets were practically deserted. The residences, raised high upon their metal columns, resembled huge rookeries, while the uprights themselves presented the appearance of steel tree trunks. The shops, as a rule, were not raised from the ground, nor were their doors bolted or barred, since thievery is practically unknown upon Barsoom. Assassination is the ever-present fear of all Barsoomians, and for this reason alone their homes are raised high above the ground at night, or in times of danger. The Tor brothers had given me explicit directions for reaching the point of the city where I could find living accommodations and be near the offices of the government agents to whom they had given me letters. My way led to the central square or plaza, which is the characteristic of all Martian cities. The plaza of Zodanga covers a square mile and is bounded by the palaces of the Jeddak, the Jeds, and other members of the royalty and nobility of Zodanga, as well as by the principal public buildings, cafes, and shops. As I was crossing the great square lost in wonder and admiration of the magnificent architecture and the gorgeous scarlet vegetation which carpeted the broad lawns, I discovered a red Martian walking briskly toward me from one of the avenues. He paid not the slightest attention to me, but as he came abreast I recognized him, and turning I placed my hand upon his shoulder, calling out, "'Kaur! Kantos Khan." like lightning he wheeled, and before I could so much as lower my hand the point of his long sword was at my breast. "'Who are you?' he growled, and then, as a backward leap carried me fifty feet from his sword, he dropped the point to the ground and exclaimed, laughing, "'I do not need a better reply. There is but one man in all Barsoom who can bounce about like a rubber ball. By the mother of the further moon, John Carter, how came you here?' and have you become a Darcine that you can change your color at will you gave me a bad half-minute my friend he continued after i had briefly outlined my adventures since parting with him in the arena at Warhoun. were my name and city known to the zodangans i would shortly be sitting on the banks of the lost sea of Koros, with my revered and departed ancestors i am here in the interest of tardos mors jeddak of helium to discover the whereabouts of Dejah Thoris, our princess. Saab Than, prince of Zodanga, has her hidden in the city, and has fallen madly in love with her. His father, Than Kosis Jenek of Zodanga, has made her voluntary marriage to his son the price of peace between our countries, but Tardos Mors will not accede to the demands, and had sent word that he and his people would rather look upon the dead face of their princess than see her wed to any than her own choice, and that personally he would prefer being engulfed in the ashes of a lost and burning helium to joining the metal of his house with that of Than Kosis. His reply was the deadliest affront he could have put upon Than Kosis and the Zodangans, but his people love him the more for it, and his strength in helium is greater today than ever. I have been here three days, continued Kantos Khan, But I have not yet found where Dejah Thoris is imprisoned. Today I join the Zodangan Navy as an air scout, and I hope in this way to win the confidence of Sab Than, the prince, who is commander of this division of the navy, and thus learn the whereabouts of Dejah Thoris. I am glad that you are here, John Carter, for I know your loyalty to my princess, and two of us working together should be able to accomplish much. The plaza was now commencing to fill with people, going and coming, upon the daily activities of their duties. The shops were opening and the cafés filling with early morning patrons. Kantos Khan led me to one of these gorgeous eating places, where we were served entirely by mechanical apparatus. No hand touched the food from the time it entered the building in its raw state until it emerged hot and delicious upon the tables before the guests, in response to the touching of tiny buttons to indicate their desires. After our meal, Kantos Khan took me with him to the headquarters of the Air Scout Squadron, and, introducing me to his superior, asked that I be enrolled as a member of the Corps. In accordance with custom, an examination was necessary, but Kantos Khan had told me to have no fear on this score, as he would attend to that part of the matter. He accomplished this by taking my order for examination to the examining officer and representing himself as John Carter. This ruse will be discovered later, he cheerfully explained, when they check up my weights, measurements, and other personal identification data. But it will be several months before this is done, and our mission should be accomplished, or have failed, long before that time. The next few days were spent by Kantos Khan in teaching me the intricacies of flying and of repairing the dainty little contrivances which the Martians use for this purpose. The body of the one-man aircraft is about sixteen feet long, two feet wide, and three inches thick, tapering to a point at each end. The driver sits on top of this plane upon a seat constructed over the small noiseless radium engine which propels it. The medium of buoyancy is contained within the thin metal walls of the body, and consists of the eighth Parsumian ray, or ray of propulsion, as it may be termed in view of its properties. This ray, like the ninth ray, is unknown on earth, but the Martians have discovered that it is an inherent property of all light, no matter from what source it emanates. They have learned that it is the solar eighth ray which propels the light of the sun to the various planets, and that it is the individual eighth ray of each planet which uh, reflects or propels the light thus obtained out into space once more. The solar eighth ray would be absorbed by the surface of Barsoom, but the Barsoomian eighth ray, which tends to propel light from Mars into space, is constantly streaming out from the planet, constituting a force of repulsion of gravity, which, when confined, is able to lift enormous weights from the surface of the ground. It is this ray which has enabled them to so perfect aviation that battleships far outweighing anything known upon Earth sail as gracefully and lightly through the thin air of Barsoom as a toy balloon in the heavy atmosphere of Earth. During the early years of the discovery of this ray, many strange accidents occurred before the Martians learned to measure and control the wonderful power they had found. In one instance, some nine hundred years before, the first great battleship to be built with eighth ray reservoirs was stored with too great a quantity of the rays, and she had sailed up from Helium with five hundred officers and men, never to return. Her power of repulsion for the planet was so great that it had carried her far into space, where she can be seen today by the aid of powerful telescopes, hurtling through the heavens ten thousand miles from Mars, a tiny satellite that will thus encircle Barsoom to the end of time. The fourth day after my arrival at Zodanga, I made my first flight, and as a result of it, I won a promotion which included quarters. In the palace of Thoncosis. As I rose above the city, I circled several times as I had seen Kantos Khan do, and then, throwing my engine into top speed, I raced at terrific velocity toward the south, following one of the great waterways which enters the Donga from that direction. I had traversed perhaps two hundred miles in a little less than an hour when I descried far below me a party of three green warriors, racing madly toward a small figure on foot which seemed to be trying to reach the confines of one of the walled fields. Dropping my machine rapidly toward them, and circling to the rear of the warriors, I soon saw that the object of their pursuit was a red Martian wearing the metal of the scout squadron to which I was attached. A short distance away lay his tiny flyer surrounded by the tools with which he had evidently been occupied in repairing some damage when surprised by the green warriors. They were now almost upon him, their flying mounts charging down on the relatively puny figure at terrific speed, while the warriors leaned low to the right with their great metal-shod spears. Each seemed striving to be the first to impale the poor Zodangan, and in another moment his fate would have been sealed had it not been for my timely arrival. Driving my fleet aircraft at high speed directly behind the warriors, I soon overtook them, and without diminishing my speed I rammed the prow of my little flyer between the shoulders of the nearest. The impact, sufficient to have torn through inches of solid steel, hurled the fellow's headless body into the air over the head of his thoat, where it fell sprawling upon the moss. The mounts of the other two warriors turned squealing in terror, and bolted in opposite directions. Reducing my speed, I circled, and came to the ground at the feet of the astonished Zodangan. He was warm in his thanks for my timely aid, and promised that my day's work would bring the reward it merited, for it was none other than a cousin of the Jeddak of Zodanga, whose life I had saved. We wasted no time in talk, as we knew that the warriors would surely return as soon as they had gained control of their mounts. Hastening to his damaged machine we were bending every effort to finish the needed repairs, and had almost completed them when we saw the two green monsters returning at top speed from opposite sides of us. When they had approached within a hundred yards their thoats again became unmanageable and absolutely refused to advance further toward the aircraft which had frightened them. The warriors finally dismounted, and hobbling their animals, advanced toward us on foot with drawn long-swords. I advanced to meet the larger, telling the Zodangan to do the best he could with the other. Finishing my man with almost no effort as had now from much practice become habitual with me, I hastened to return to my new acquaintance whom I found, indeed, in desperate straits. He was wounded, and down, with the huge foot of his antagonist upon his throat, and the great long-sword raised to deal the final thrust. With a bound I cleared the fifty feet intervening between us, and with outstretched point drove my sword completely through the body of the green warrior." His sword fell, harmless, to the ground, and he sank limply upon the prostrate form of the zodangan. A cursory examination of the latter revealed no mortal injuries, and, after a brief rest, he asserted that he felt fit to attempt the return voyage. He would have to pilot his own craft, however, as these frail vessels are not intended to convey but a single person. Quickly completing the repairs. We rose together into the still, cloudless Martian sky, and at great speed and without further mishap, returned to Zodanga. As we neared the city, we discovered a mighty concourse of civilians and troops assembled upon the plain before the city. The sky was black with naval vessels and private and public pleasure craft, flying long streamers of gay colored silks and banners and flags of odd and picturesque design. My companion signalled that I slow down, and running his machine close beside mine suggested that we approach and watch the ceremony, which he said was for the purpose of conferring honors on individual officers and men for bravery and other distinguished service. He then unfurled a little ensign which denoted that his craft bore a member of the royal family of and together we made our way through the maze of low-lying air-vessels until we hung directly over the jeddak of Zodanga and his staff. All were mounted upon the small domestic bull-thoats of the Red Martians, and their trappings and ornamentation bore such a quantity of gorgeously colored feathers that I could not but be struck with the startling resemblance the concourse bore to a band of the Red Indians of my own Earth. One of the staff called the attention of Thon Kosis to the presence of my companion above them, and the ruler motioned for him to descend. As they waited for the troops to move into position, facing the jeddak, the two talked earnestly together, the jeddak and his staff occasionally glancing up at me. I could not hear their conversation, and presently it ceased, and all dismounted as the last body of troops had wheeled into position before their emperor. A member of the staff advanced toward the troops, and calling the name of a soldier, commanded him to advance. The officer then recited the nature of the heroic act which had won the approval of the jeddak, and the latter advanced and placed a metal ornament upon the left arm of the lucky man. Ten men had been so decorated when the aide called out, John Carter, Air Scout. Never in my life had I been so surprised, but the habit of military discipline is strong within me, and I dropped my little machine lightly to the ground and advanced on foot, as I had seen the others do. As I halted before the officer he addressed me in a voice audible to the entire assemblage of troops and spectators in recognition john carter he said of your remarkable courage and skill in defending the person of the cousin of the jeddak than kosis and single-handed vanquishing three green warriors it is the pleasure of our jeddak to confer on you the mark of his esteem than kosis then advanced toward me and placing an ornament upon me said my cousin has narrated the details of your wonderful achievement which seems little short of miraculous. And if you can so well defend a cousin of the Jeddak, how much better could you defend the person of the Jeddak himself? You are therefore appointed a padwar of the guards, and will be quartered in my palace hereafter. I thanked him, and at his direction joined the members of his staff. After the ceremony, I returned my machine to its quarters on the roof of the barracks of the Air Scout Squadron, and with an orderly from the palace to guide me, I reported to the officer in charge of the palace. End of Chapter 21. Chapter 22 of A Princess of Mars by Edgar Rice Burroughs. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Thomas Copeland. Chapter 22 I Find Deja. The Majordomo, to whom I reported, had been given instructions to station me near the person of the Jeddak, who, in time of war, is always in great danger of assassination, as the rule that all is fair in war seems to constitute the entire ethics of Martian conflict he therefore escorted me immediately to the apartment in which than kosis then was the ruler was engaged in conversation with his son sab than and several courtiers of his household and did not perceive my entrance the walls of the apartment were completely hung with splendid tapestries which hid any windows or doors which may have pierced them the room was lighted by imprisoned rays of sunshine held between the ceiling proper and what appeared to be a ground-glass false ceiling a few inches below. My guide drew aside one of the tapestries, disclosing a passage which encircled the room between the hangings and the walls of the chamber. Within this passage I was to remain, he said, so long as Than Kosis was in the apartment. When he left I was to follow. My only duty was to guard the ruler and keep out of sight as much as possible. I would be relieved after a period of four hours. The major-domo then left me. The tapestries were of a strange weaving which gave the appearance of heavy solidity from one side, but from my hiding-place I could perceive all that took place within the room as readily as though there had been no curtain intervening. Scarcely had I gained my post than the tapestry at the opposite end of the chamber separated and four soldiers of the guard entered, surrounding a female figure. As they approached Than Kosis, the soldiers fell to either side, and there, standing before the jeddak and not ten feet from me, her beautiful face radiant with smiles, was Dejah Thoris. Sab Than, prince of Zodanga, advanced to meet her, and hand in hand they approached close to the jeddak. Kosis LOOKED UP IN SURPRISE, AND RISING SALUTED HER. TO WHAT STRANGE FREAK DO I OWE THIS VISIT FROM THE PRINCESS OF HELIUM, WHO TWO DAYS AGO, WITH RARE CONSIDERATION FOR MY PRIDE, ASSURED ME THAT SHE WOULD PREFER TAL HAJUS, THE GREEN THARK, TO MY SON. Dejah Thoris ONLY SMILED THE MORE, AND WITH THE ROGUISH DIMPLES PLAYING AT THE CORNERS OF HER MOUTH, SHE MADE ANSWER. From the beginning of time upon barsoom it has been the prerogative of woman to change her mind as she listed and to dissemble in matters concerning her heart that you will forgive than kosis as has your son two days ago i was not sure of his love for me but now i am and i have come to beg of you to forget my rash words and to accept the assurance of the princess of helium that when the time comes she will wed Sabthan, Prince of Zodanga. I am glad that you have so decided, replied Than It is far from my desire to push war further against the people of Helium, and your promise shall be recorded and a proclamation to my people issued forthwith. It were better, Than interrupted Jejah that the proclamation wait the ending of this war. It would look strange indeed to my people, or to yours, were the princess of Helium to give herself to her country's enemy in the midst of hostilities. "'Cannot the war be ended at once?' spoke than "'It requires but the word of Than to bring peace. Say it, my father. Say the word that will hasten my happiness, and end this unpopular strife.' "'We shall see,' replied Than "'how the people of Helium take to peace.' I shall at least offer it to them." Dejah Thoris, after a few words, turned and left the apartment, still followed by her guards. Thus was the edifice of my brief dream of happiness dashed broken to the ground of reality. The woman for whom I had offered my life, and from whose lips I had so recently heard a declaration of love for me, had lightly forgotten my very existence and smilingly given herself to the son of her people's most hated enemy. Although I had heard it with my own ears, I could not believe it. I must search out her apartments and force her to repeat the cruel truth to me alone before I would be convinced, and so I deserted my post, and hastened through the passage behind the tapestries toward the door by which she had left the chamber. Slipping quietly through this opening, I discovered a maze of winding corridors branching and turning in every direction. Running rapidly down first one, and then another of them, I soon became hopelessly lost, and was standing panting against a side wall when I heard voices near me. Apparently they were coming from the opposite side of the partition against which I leaned, and presently I made out the tones of Dejah Thoris. I could not hear the words, but I knew that I could not possibly be mistaken in the voice. Moving on a few steps, I discovered another passageway, at the end of which lay a door. Walking boldly forward, I pushed into the room, only to find myself in a small antechamber in which were the four guards who had accompanied her. One of them instantly arose and accosted me, asking the nature of my business. "'I am from Than I replied and wished to speak privately with Dejah Thoris, Princess of Helium. And your order?" asked the fellow. I did not know what he meant, but replied that I was a member of the guard, and without waiting for a reply from him I strode toward the opposite door of the antechamber, behind which I could hear Dejah Thoris conversing. But my entrance was not to be so easily accomplished. The guardsman stepped before me, saying, no one comes from Than without carrying an order or the password. You must give me one or the other before you may pass. The only order I require, my friend, to enter where I will, hangs at my side, I answered, tapping my long-sword. Will you let me pass in peace, or no? For reply, he whipped out his own sword, calling to the others to join him, and thus the four stood, with drawn weapons, barring my further progress.' You are not here by the order of Than cried the one who had first addressed me. And not only shall you not enter the apartments of the Princess of Helium, but you shall go back to Than under guard to explain this unwarranted temerity. Throw down your sword. You cannot hope to overcome four of us," he added with a grim smile. My reply was a quick thrust which left me but three antagonists, and I can assure you that they were worthy of my mettle. They had me backed against the wall in no time, fighting for my life. Slowly I worked my way to a corner of the room where I could force them to come at me only one at a time, and thus we fought upward of twenty minutes, the clanging of steel on steel producing a veritable bedlam in the little room. The noise had brought Dejah Thoris to the door of her apartment, and there she stood throughout the conflict with Sola at her back, peering over her shoulder. Her face was set and emotionless and I knew that she did not recognize me, nor did Sola. Finally a lucky cut brought down a second guardsman, and then, with only two opposing me, I changed my tactics, and rushed them down after the fashion of my fighting that had won me many a victory. The third fell within ten seconds after the second, and the last lay dead upon the bloody floor a few moments later. They were brave men and noble fighters, and it grieved me that I had been forced to kill them, But I would have willingly depopulated all Barsoom, could I have reached the side of my Dejah Thoris in no other way. Sheathing my bloody blade, I advanced toward my Martian princess, who still stood mutely gazing at me without sign of recognition. Who are you, Zodangan?" she whispered, another enemy to harass me in my misery? I am a friend, I answered, a once cherished friend. No friend of Helium's princess wears that metal, she replied, and yet the voice. I have heard it before. It is not—it cannot be. No, for he is dead. It is, though, my princess, none other than John Carter, I said. Do you not recognize, even through paint and strange metal, the heart of your chieftain? As I came close to her she swayed toward me with outstretched hands, But as I reached to take her in my arms, she drew back with a shudder and a little moan of misery. Too late, too late, she grieved. Oh, my chieftain that was, and whom I thought dead, had you but returned one little hour before, but now it is too late, too late. What do you mean, Dejah Thoris? I cried. THAT YOU WOULD NOT HAVE PROMISED YOURSELF TO THE ZODANGAN PRINCE HAD YOU KNOWN THAT I LIVED? THINK YOU, JOHN CARTER, THAT I WOULD GIVE MY HEART TO YOU YESTERDAY AND TODAY TO ANOTHER? I THOUGHT THAT IT LAY BURIED WITH HER ASHES IN THE PITS OF Warhoon, AND SO TODAY I HAVE PROMISED MY BODY TO ANOTHER TO SAVE MY PEOPLE FROM THE CURSE OF A VICTORIOUS ZODANGAN ARMY. BUT I AM NOT DEAD, MY PRINCESS. I HAVE COME TO CLAIM YOU and all Zodanga cannot prevent it. It is too late, John Carter. My promise is given, and on Barsoom that is final. The ceremonies which follow later are but meaningless formalities. They make the fact of marriage no more certain than does the funeral cortege of a jeddak, again place the seal of death upon him. I am as good as married, John Carter. No longer may you call me your princess. No longer are you my chieftain. I know but little of your customs here upon Barsoom, Dejah Thoris, but I do know that I love you. And if you meant the last words you spoke to me that day as the hordes of Warhoon were charging down upon us, no other man shall ever claim you as his bride. You meant them then, my princess, and you mean them still. Say that it is true. I meant them, John Carter, she whispered i cannot repeat them now for i have given myself to another ah if you had only known our ways my friend she continued half to herself the promise would have been yours long months ago and you could have claimed me before all others it might have meant the fall of helium but i would have given my empire for my Tharkian chief then aloud she said Do you remember the night when you offended me? You called me your princess without having asked my hand of me, and then you boasted that you had fought for me. You did not know, and I should not have been offended. I see that now. But there was no one to tell you what I could not, that upon Barsoom there are two kinds of women in the city of the red men, the one they fight for that they may ask them in marriage, THE OTHER KIND THEY FIGHT FOR ALSO, BUT NEVER ASK THEIR HANDS. WHEN A MAN HAS WON A WOMAN, HE MAY ADDRESS HER AS HIS PRINCESS, OR IN ANY OF THE SEVERAL TERMS WHICH SIGNIFY POSSESSION. YOU HAD FOUGHT FOR ME, BUT HAD NEVER ASKED ME IN MARRIAGE. AND SO WHEN YOU CALLED ME YOUR PRINCESS, YOU SEE, SHE faltered. I WAS HURT. BUT EVEN THEN, JOHN CARTER. I did not repulse you, as I should have done, until you made it doubly worse by taunting me with having won me through combat." "'I do not need to ask your forgiveness now,' Dejah Thoris," I cried. "'You must know that my fault was of ignorance of your Barsoomian customs. What I failed to do, through implicit belief that my petition would be presumptuous and unwelcome, I do now,' Dejah Thoris. I ask you to be my wife, and by all the Virginian fighting blood that flows in my veins you shall be." "'No, John Carter, it is useless,' she cried, hopelessly. "'I may never be yours while Sab Than lives. You have sealed his death-warrant, my princess. Sab Than dies." "'Nor that either,' she hastened to explain. "'I may not wed the man who slays my husband. Even in self-defense it is custom. We are ruled by custom upon Barsoom. It is useless, my friend. You must bear the sorrow with me. That, at least, we may share in common. That, and the memory of the brief days among the Tharks. You must go now, nor ever see me again. Goodbye, my chieftain that was. Disheartened and dejected, I withdrew from the room, but I was not entirely discouraged, nor would I admit that Dejah Thoris was lost to me until the ceremony had actually been performed. As I wandered along the corridors, I was as absolutely lost in the mazes of winding passageways as I had been before I discovered Dejah Thoris' apartments. I knew that my only hope lay in escape from the city of Zodanga the matter of the four dead guardsmen would have to be explained, and, as I could never reach my original post without a guide, suspicion would surely rest on me so soon as I was discovered wandering aimlessly through the palace. Presently I came upon a spiral runway leading to a lower floor, and this I followed downward for several stories until I reached the doorway of a large apartment in which were a number of guardsmen. The walls of this room were hung with transparent tapestries, behind which I secreted myself without being apprehended. The conversation of the guardsmen was general, and awakened no interest in me until an officer entered the room and ordered four of the men to relieve the detail who were guarding the Princess of Helium. Now, I knew, my troubles would commence in earnest, and, indeed, they were upon me all too soon. For it seemed that the squad had scarcely left the guard-room before one of their number burst in again breathlessly, crying that they had found their four comrades butchered in the antechamber. In a moment the entire palace was alive with people. Guardsmen, officers, courtiers, servants, and slaves ran helter-skelter through the corridors and apartments carrying messages and orders, and searching for signs of the assassin. This was my opportunity and, slim as it appeared, I grasped it, for, as a number of soldiers came hurrying past my hiding-place, I fell in behind them, and followed through the mazes of the palace, until, in passing through a great hall, I saw the blessed light of day coming in through a series of larger windows. Here I left my guides, and, slipping to the nearest window, sought for an avenue of escape. The windows opened upon a great balcony which overlooked one of the broad avenues of Zodanga. The ground was about thirty feet below, and at a like distance from the building was a wall fully twenty feet high, constructed of polished glass about a foot in thickness. To a red Martian escape by this path would have appeared impossible, but to me, with my earthly strength and agility, it seemed already accomplished. My only fear was in being detected before darkness fell, for I could not make the leap in broad daylight while the court below and the avenue beyond were crowded with the Accordingly I searched for a hiding place, and finally found one by accident, inside a huge hanging ornament which swung from the ceiling of the hall and about ten feet from the floor. Into the capacious bowl-like vase I sprang with ease and scarcely had i settled down within it than i heard a number of people enter the apartment the group stopped beneath my hiding place and i could plainly overhear their every word it is the work of heliumites said one of the men yes o jeddak but how had they access to the palace i could believe that even with the diligent care of your guardsmen a single enemy might reach the inner chambers but how a force of six or eight fighting men could have done so unobserved is beyond me we shall soon know however for here comes the royal psychologist another man now joined the group and after making his formal greetings to his ruler said o mighty jeddak it is a strange tale i read in the dead minds of your faithful guardsmen they were felled not by a number of fighting men but by a single opponent he paused to let the full weight of this announcement impress his hearers and that his statement was scarcely credited was evidenced by the impatient exclamation of incredulity which escaped the lips of than what manner of weird tale are you bringing me notan he cried it is the truth my jeddak replied the psychologist in fact the impressions were strongly marked on the brain of each of the four guardsmen their antagonist was a very tall man wearing the metal of one of your own guardsmen, and his fighting ability was little short of marvellous, for he fought fair against the entire four and vanquished them by his surpassing skill and superhuman strength and endurance. Though he wore the metal of Zodanga, my jeddak, such a man was never seen before in this or any other country upon Barsoom. The mind of the Princess of Helium, whom I have examined and questioned, was a blank to me, she has perfect control, and I could not read one iota of it. She said that she witnessed a portion of the encounter, and that when she looked there was but one man engaged with the guardsman, a man whom she did not recognize as ever having seen. "'Where is my erstwhile savior?" spoke another of the party, and I recognized the voice of the cousin of Than whom I had rescued from the green warriors.' By the metal of my first ancestor, he went on, but the description fits him to perfection, especially as to his fighting ability. "'Where is this man?' cried Than "'Have him brought to me at once.' "'What know you of him, cousin?' "'It seemed strange to me, now that I think upon it, that there should have been such a fighting man in Zodanga, of whose name, even, we were ignorant before to-day. "'And his name, too—John Carter?' who ever heard of such a name upon Barsoom. Word was soon brought that I was nowhere to be found, either in the palace or in my former quarters in the barracks of the air scout squadron. Kantos Khan they had found and questioned, but he knew nothing of my whereabouts, and as to my past he had told them he knew as little, since he had but recently met me during our captivity among the Wahoons. Keep your eyes on this other one, commanded Than Kosis, He also is a stranger, and likely as not they both hail from Helium, and where one is we shall sooner or later find the other. Quadruple the air patrol, and let every man who leaves the city by air or ground be subjected to the closest scrutiny." Another messenger now entered with word that I was still within the palace walls. The likeness of every person who has entered or left the palace grounds today has been carefully examined, concluded the fellow, and not one approaches the likeness of this new padwar of the guards, other than that which was recorded of him at the time he entered. Then we will have him shortly, commented Than contentedly, and in the meanwhile we will repair to the apartments of the Princess of Helium and question her in regard to the affair. She may know more than she cared to divulge to you, no Notan. Come. They left the hall, and as darkness had fallen without, I slipped lightly from my hiding-place and hastened to the balcony. Few were in sight, and, choosing a moment when none seemed near, I sprang quickly to the top of the glass wall and from there to the avenue beyond the palace grounds. End of Chapter 22.